E-commerce isn't just an aspect of growing a successful wine business, it is crucial. And that's why I strongly recommend working with Offset Partners. As a proudly independent e-commerce technology and brand design company based in wine country, Offset understands the operational nuances and the customer service imperatives that distinguish a great online buying experience from a mediocre one. And that's why leading and legendary brands like Saxum, Arnott Roberts, and Kermit Lynch Wine Merchant choose Offset's proprietary commerce technology platform to power their DTC sales. If you're an allocated winery or a high-touch merchant that values an elegant, effective commerce solution for both you, your customers, and your team, reach out to the smart team at offsetpartners.com. That's O-F-F-S-E-T, partners with an S, dot com, to craft a better direct-to-consumer experience. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. Ed Bear on the show of The Art of Eating and the recently released 50 Foods. Hello, sir. How are you? Fine, thanks. How are you? Very nice to have you here. Thank you. So you moved to Vermont in the early 1970s. It's true. In 1973, I moved to way up in the Northeast Kingdom of Vermont. It was a real back to the land thing. I moved there. People would say, why'd you go there? It was the place, one of the places in the whole Northeast with some of the cheapest land. It's the poorest, coldest part of Vermont. And maybe for that reason, arguably the most beautiful part of Vermont. And still sort of is in some ways. Things, a lot of things have changed, but I was inspired by Helen and Scott Nearing, who were old communists. Back to, they were back to the land people in the 30s. Scott had been, uh, he, was a, he, was at the, he was teaching at the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania, and this was just before World War I, and he spoke out against child labor in those days before there were any child labor laws, and in fact, that got him fired, and it turned him into a communist for life. So, uh, at one point, he married Helen, and they were in New York City, and they bailed and went to southern Vermont to live a purer life, and they lived that purer life for a couple of decades, and then in about 1955, southern Vermont was getting way too developed and spoiled for them, so they moved to the coast of Maine, an area which is actually now a wee bit spoiled, but on the coast of the Penobscot Bay on Cape Rozier, where uh, the, the great organic gardener, Elliot Coleman, now lives on land that he bought from them, but Helen and Scott went there in 1955. 55 because it was pretty darn empty. And they built were famous for building stone houses in a slip form method. And I read all their books and I copied the method and I built the slip forms and I built a small stone house up in the Northeast Kingdom of Vermont and lived there for a few years and then moved on. But that was my moved on still within the Northeast Kingdom, still within Vermont. But that was my my grounding was that stone house and I built it grew a big garden all around it. My first year I went, you know, while I was building the house, I built like an eight by eight garden. And then I immediately, the next year, expanded it to something like, I don't know, 100 by 200 feet. It was completely out of control, covered with weeds, but there was a certain amount of good vegetables in it. And that was, I don't know, me launching myself in a way into food without quite knowing where it was ever going to be headed. So you were more focused on doing some hands-on work. Everything was very physical. It was, I mean, obviously, 
the stone house very physical. In fact, it was also very early back to the land in the sense that um, I wasn't very interested in electricity. My big my big compromise was a neighbor came over and helped me cut some sheets of plywood. He brought his skill saw and his generator. and We cut like lots of sheets of plywood in half that I would have had to saw in half. It would have taken a really long time, but the entire house was built without electricity other than that horrible compromise. Uh, it, it was, yeah, it was the real thing. You know, there were people, there were people then doing stuff with horses a little bit because the old Vermonters, some of them still had their workhorses and they would use them a teeny bit for farming. But as you probably can imagine, a tractor, you just go out and turn the key. The horses have to be harnessed up and connected to the equipment and all that. But there were people, so the hippies would come in and, you know, I remember a guy digging a foundation with a horse. He had like the bottom part of an old steam shovel. Well, that didn't originate with a steam shovel. It clearly, when I saw this guy doing it, originated with with a horse-drawn piece of equipment. You basically dragged your way through the foundation hole and you got it deeper and deeper. And uh, this this one guy, he was building his house that way. It was the way it was. So in the 70s, you were doing a lot of carpentry work. I was doing carpentry. I sort of kept going in that same direction. I did small-scale house building, uh, renovation of what we would now call historic houses, but they were like the only houses back then. There were very few new houses in that part of Vermont when I moved there. What was the transition from being a a hands-on carpenter to writing about hands-on work and being a publisher of a magazine? (laughs) What was? It was quite a leap, I guess. I really had no conscious sense that I was interested in food and and much less even wine. I, you know, I do remember at one point back in those days buying a $3 bottle and realizing it really was a big step upward from the dollar bottle. <laughs> it was evident. Um, so I kept on with the house building for a while, and I realized at a certain point that I wasn't getting anywhere. I mean, it was about a dozen years of flailing about in a way, uh, and I wanted to do something using my mind a little more in a different way, and my then-girlfriend pointed out to me that I was really interested in food. And that was the first time I actually became conscious of it. It had just been a thing in, for me, my family, whatever, you know, I remember back in the stone house inviting people over and having, you know, kidneys, serving them kidneys for dinner. I just thought that was a kind of a normal thing, not too weird, but apparently other people thought it was kind of unusual. (laughs) So... I had a friend who'd started a building trades magazine at the end of a dirt road uh, where he and his wife had built a house and they did not have electricity. They had telephone. They only had phone because the electrical poles was, were taller and therefore more expensive. Telephone poles, just plain telephone poles with no electricity were shorter and it was cheaper to bring in just phones. So they started this building trades magazine, a business with just a phone. And later they moved to town and had real offices with electricity and electrical lights and eventually computers, I'm sure. And he turned that into a highly successful business and ultimately sold it for what I suppose were some millions uh, now, some years ago, and he retired. So to jump back to, to uh, oh, I don't know, 1975, I don't know. And then, and then he started that. And then so about 1986 and his business was really going, that's when I said to myself, okay, well, I'm going to put out a publication about food. I don't know why I had the confidence to think I could do it, to write and edit or whatever. I just thought I could do it. That, I don't know. I can't explain that. And I launched that first issue in November of 1986. It was an eight-page black and white food letter, as they used to be called in those days. Well, there were, there were, there were, 
uh, faccines in those days. There were, I'm trying to remember, there were early things, early funky magazines. There was a whole magazine about funky magazines. <laughs> and mine was actually one of the more normal ones they ever covered. Uh, and it was from the start, it was called The Art of Eating. I thought of calling, calling it something like Eating Well, which then later became the name of another magazine published in Vermont. Uh, I didn't, I con was very conscious. I did not want to call it the art of cooking. It was really always going to be about eating. I don't know exactly why, but I, I think it is because I think that eating well in, in the non-health sense is a fundamental part of being a civilized person. And I always wanted to know more about eating. I wanted to go take a cooking course because I thought that if in those days, French this would have been French food, but I thought that if you didn't know how to sit down in a restaurant in France and know how to order and know what was on the menu, you were just not there. And I, it was something I always planned to do. So you can say that starting the art of eating was really just a, 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 an autodidactic, a, a project of self-education. And, and, and I guess it still is, though I, I've taken it to an extreme, perhaps. <laughs> And you used to write and do all the reporting. In those days, I did everything. I, I could afford my work. I couldn't afford to pay anybody else. And I even did illustrations in the early days that some people missed for a long time after I stopped doing them. And after I stopped doing the illustrations, I took photos. And the reason I took photos was it was much faster. Uh, I would be killing myself to, do the, to get all the illustrations done for every issue. It was, yeah, it was a, a little bit of a manic project. What was the first issue devoted to? The first issue was devoted to bread, which might even now still be my favorite topic. There was one extremely long article really about what I'm now calling big bread, but pain de campagne um, and, and pain levain, sourdough, and it was, but big country bread. And there was on the front page sharing the the. the space with a big bread article, which went inside and went on and on through the eight pages. There was a, an, a review of a book called Les Fours Pains au Québec. I think that's the correct title, but The Bread Ovens of Quebec. And I wrote this entire review having bought the book up in Quebec. And it's a great book. It's, I mean, if you, if you love bread ovens, it's a book you got to have. I wrote the whole review not realizing the book was available in English. So I was never as how shall I say, accessible and user-friendly as I ought to have been from the start to run a business. And so I was ready to run this book for a brand new publication, which didn't yet have an audience. And I was already basically ruling out non-Francophones. <laughs> it was pretty, pretty silly. Um, but it was, a, it was an interesting review, which was written in English. And then just before I went to press, I realized that, that the book was in fact also available in English. So I was able to make that change and be a little more accommodating from the start, but not that much. Because Vermont's interesting in that you're equally close to certain major cities in well the made the yeah the the closest big city to to where i live now and lived then was was montreal because boston's three and a half hours montreal's two and a quarter you see both sides and have seen both sides of an engagement with french cuisine especially yeah i, I um you know the, the the native cooking if that's the word of of, of french-speaking canada is is a very French cooking. I mean, it's changed now. It's become debased. Um, but but you know, if you would talk to older people in the country, you could hear about dishes that sounded like things you might see in France, especially I think the the rural population. But we have to remember that uh, French Canada, because the English ran it, was 
a place of a lot of people without much means, and especially in the cities, I think a lot of that food culture had been lost, uh, but not but not in the rural rural areas. But I say that, but but there's still an enormous appreciation for sensual things compared with uh, what we can stereotype as Puritan New England. At the same time, so. It's a way too. It's way too simple to 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 say that the the cities had lost the food culture. There was always a huge respect for France, and and there still is. I mean, if you know, if they want technical information in Quebec, they don't look to see what's available in English. They they look to see what's available in French, and 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 the reference is always always to France. I think it is still true. For instance, if you would go to buy a bar of lint chocolate in Quebec or a jar of my mustard, it's better in Quebec. They make it differently. You're getting the product from France. You're not getting the, 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 the main North American distribution. Early on with the art of eating, you used to focus on one topic per issue. Yes, pretty much. And, and, and the extreme example being, I don't know, the 15th issue, somewhere in there, where I, and then we were up to, I don't know, 12 or 16 pages. I devoted an entire issue, 15,000 words, to then unobtainable Provencal goat's milk cheeses. Uh, and there were no recipes. There were not even any subheads. There were no breaks. It just went straight through from the beginning to the end. And there were some few small drawings to break it up, not many. And that was also, I, I, you know, it wasn't in my mind to challenge the reader in a negative way. They were just things I thought everybody should know about. And, and every, you know, I guess in my mind was everybody should go to France and, you know, it was fine to stay at a, I don't know what, you know, then probably the equivalent of a $35 a night hotel room in the countryside, because hotels in the countryside in France are rel still relatively cheap. And, you know, eat your, maybe barely go into a restaurant at all, but eat your lunch by the side of the road with a bottle of wine that maybe came from a co-op and the cheeses were, I don't know, they cost nothing. And a loaf of bread and a piece of fruit, maybe some olives. I mean, this, this to me at that time was an extreme of luxury to be able to taste those things. And I think that rather than, than having any antagonism toward my reader, I wanted the reader to understand that and share that enthusiasm and go and, and do that same thing too. You said that they were previously unavailable. So does that mean that as time has gone along, more of the things that you wrote about early on have become available? Oh, for sure. I mean, it's, it's day and night. I mean, if you think 1973, but then I wrote that piece, could have been even circa 1990. And so, so you know, these two, three decades that have passed have just transformed everything. There have been losses, I always say, and huge losses. But if you go into an average restaurant in the United States, I know I'm leaping a bit from the cheeses, but if you go into an average restaurant in the United States with aspirations to produce good food and an, and an awareness, not lost, <clears throat> I don't know where, but in the middle of the country, somewhere in the countryside, but, but, but in, with an awareness of what's going on in the world. So if you go into any, any restaurant with an aspiration to good quality, the quality of the ingredients, often of the wine, of everything is so, so much higher <clears throat> than it was, excuse me, when I was growing up in the 60s, say, when my parents took me to a restaurant. I remember thinking, oh my God, if you had to live on this food, you know, gloppy gravies full of fat. I just thought, I never said this to my parents, but I thought to myself, and you're paying good money for this, and this is a quality restaurant in New York even, say, for instance, because my grandparents were all in New York. You couldn't live on this food. You would die if you ate this food all the time. And now if you go into a little restaurant, it's like olive oil and it's fresh vegetables and it's nothing is overcooked and you know where things came from. In the old days, you, you, you didn't know when that food had been cooked. I, I, I mean, I don't want to say that there weren't exceptions, 
probably New York, one or two restaurants in Washington. I mean, a few places, maybe on the West Coast where there's more appreciation for freshness. But I mean, it was rare that you would find anything like that. I, I remember having the first kind of French style salad. I don't can't put a year to it, but in some restaurant in Washington where I don't know, my parents took me because for some very special thing, because, I don't know, Jackie Kennedy had liked it or something. And there was just basically a salad of Boston lettuce dressed with a clean vinaigrette. Everything was ultra fresh. Every piece of lettuce clearly had been looked at and was like all roughly the same shape. And I'm thinking, wow, this is just another world. But that was another world. There were not many people eating that way. So to go back to the goat's milk cheeses, in Vermont, in 1973, when I got there, there were no, there were some hippies with goats and they were making some cheese, but the quality of the cheese was nowhere. And there, I remember judging uh, goat's milk cheeses and other goat's milk products for what was then an, an organization, which I think has disappeared called the American Dairy Goats Product Association. It's been absorbed into something else. The poor little, the cheesemakers who were making these cheeses were modeling them on French cheeses that they had never tasted because they had so little money, they could never go to France even for that economy trip that I, I was able to afford. And they didn't know what the model was. They didn't know the model. They knew it existed. They'd read about it. They'd seen photos, but they didn't know what it was. And now, I don't know whether people have more money or what, but they have an enormous amount more knowledge. They know what those cheeses are. They're available in this country. I'm simplifying a little because some of those things were available, but they tended to be abused. So you really didn't know what they were like in France. There was a period, people are forgetting now, but there was a period up to some point in the 80s where there, it was not yet illegal to bring raw milk cheeses in, but they were not in good shape. They were not being flown in. And um, you have to remember that those little cheeses in France, the raw milk cheeses, they evolve incredibly rapidly. 10 days is not a fresh cheese anymore. You know, a fresh cheese is one day, two days, three days, maybe five days. I don't, but, but it's fresh. It's just been molded and barely drained and turned out of the mold. 10 days, you know, molds are the other sense of mold. Molds are beginning, yeast, things are beginning to appear on the outside of the cheeses. They're being transformed by various microflora. 14 days, you can have a really mature cheese. Three weeks, you can have a really, you know, a cheese that's really gone as far as you really want it to go. And it's because they're being uh, ripened at natural temperatures. Now, if you get a raw milk cheese from France in this country, it has to be 60 days old. So they do set some of those things in cold places so they don't spoil and they evolve for 60 days. I don't say that they're bad cheeses, but they are completely different cheeses. And for me, what the art of eating has always been about is authenticity. So what, what's authentic about a cheese to me, and this is leading to a larger discussion, but what's authentic to me about a cheese is that it's been ripened at natural temperatures. It's been, it's been aged at natural temperatures. And when refrigeration comes in, it's, an, it's a form of intervention. So we're talking, you know, Okay, you've got a wine on. It's not a not wine audience, so non-interventionist wines. You can argue that a cheese that's been matured in an artificial environment is an interventionist cheese. I mean, I'd be grateful to eat one of those as opposed to nothing by a long shot, but, but, but the argument can be made. And jumping around, I want to not beat on refrigeration too much because you can argue, and, and probably in wine you've had people sitting in this chair arguing the same thing, but with food in general, including wine, the two biggest changes in technology I would say that have been beneficial are um, maybe, maybe three. One would be refrigeration because you can take something like a fresh produce and, and since if you don't have your own garden and you're having to go somewhere to get it at a supermarket, it prevents 
the it it holds more of that freshness. It prevents the um, the very rapid changes that that start to occur at, at at normal temperatures just after you harvest something. So one would be refrigeration. Two would be large amounts of water because historically, you know, on farms in France, say somewhere, a winemaker or whoever, they didn't have large amounts of water. They had a well. Depends. You know, they might have had a stream somewhere, but a well. And so it so refrigeration, large amounts of water, and then hot water. Large amounts of hot water to clean wine tanks and barrels and things like that, but but just basically to keep your, your utensils clean. If you don't have that, and then we go back to cheese, you're depending upon an equilibrium of uh, of organisms in the cheese-making room, in the barn, in the cheese-making room, in the alloir, which would be the, um, the ripening room, um, so that the good have achieved an equilibrium where they're in charge. And, and it's not that hard to achieve that. And that's why, for instance, if you have a wooden cutting board, they did some research a few years ago, it actually is less dangerous than a plastic cutting board because there are organisms living there and it's an acidic environment and I don't know all the fine points. But something similar was true for cheese. So all these places had, I don't say without exception, I don't say there were bad things didn't sometimes happen, but but they had achieved this balance where it was safe and it also was incredibly good for taste. I want to also say, if I remember sometime when I was first writing about cheese, there was some like a 1992 study by a couple of guys out at the University of Wisconsin, I think. And it was like, they went through this whole thing about bad things that had happened with people getting sick from cheese. And they went through the whole thing and they concluded that, so what we need to do is basically more heat treatment, more pasteurization. But then if you read, it was basically a study that that was a list of other previous studies and bad events that had happened. And if you read that, you could see that the most dangerous events where people died, invariably they had been with pasteurized milk cheese because pasteurized milk... uh, as soon as you pasteurize the milk, it's just a medium ready for the first thing to take off. And if that thing is bad, you can get a toxic cheese. So I used to say for a number of years, um, let's see if I can get, get, get this right. If your standard is death, then clearly raw milk cheeses are much more safe than pasteurized milk cheeses. I suppose that's still true. There probably people have looked more closely at that whole subject since then, but there's an enormous amount of safety involved in raw milk cheeses. So you have an engagement with cheese, and eventually that sort of engagement would take you to travels to Europe. There was a point at which, um, how shall I say, I'd gotten as far as I could with book learning and standing at my kitchen counter and stove and cooking and tasting stuff. I just felt I had to go further. Um, you had I had to taste, and I just and I needed the information. And even in the day of the internet, there's not now which is getting better and better and more and more information. Everything is not out there. And eh, yeah, you can, you can do telephone interviews across the ocean. I've done a lot of those, but nothing, nothing beats, as you know, sitting opposite somebody and having a conversation and you can draw people out more than you can over the phone. You, if you need to see something or taste something, you just have a completely different sense. And how can you write interestingly about stuff with, without describing somebody physically a physical situation and then get the, describing the taste. So inevitably, at a certain point, I felt I had to, to travel abroad. And I'm drawing a little bit of a, a blank now, which was that first thing. It might have been the Provençal piece. And another one that I did early on was uh, 
pizza in Naples back before we had Neapolitan pizzas all over America. In fact, I don't think there were any Neapolitan pizzas in America, not a one. Uh, I, I realized what, I must have read stuff. I don't know. I realized I had to go to Naples because that's where it came from. And I still, because of that experience, have a really strict sense in my mind of what constitutes a pizza, one part of which would be that it's, all, it's poor people's food. So the idea of pulling a pizza out of the oven and adding stuff to it that's been, say, cooked separately or even adding already cooked stuff and then putting it in the oven. No, it's all, the fuel is incredibly expensive. It, the wood came from the mountains. It was oak that came from the mountains. If you're on the coast of Campania there, you see the, the, that ridge of the Apennines is, is still there past the Terra di, La, di Lavoro. Um, so, so you need to make the best of it. People didn't have, weren't, didn't cook at home. It's sort of getting like now with food cards in New York or whatever. People don't cook at home, didn't cook at home then because they didn't have a cooking facilities because you couldn't afford cooking facilities. Or if they did cook, they cooked on the street, particularly in Naples, the poor. But you didn't have an oven. No, like nobody had an oven. Very few people had an oven. Professionals had ovens. The aristocracy had ovens. So if you were a professional with an oven, you had to figure it out. So you're putting raw stuff into the oven to cook. You're not like cooking things twice. It's not elaborate. So I don't know. For me, that's that's part of the definition of, of pizza. And one of the reasons it cooks so quickly is because the ovens are incredibly efficiently designed. The physics are just fabulous. So you're getting, you're getting maximum heat out of that oven. And sometimes, I think maybe people do this a little bit in this country now, but um, there were a lot of craftsmen around. So there'd be furniture makers and there'd be wood shavings. And, and at moments when the oven wasn't quite hot enough, they would throw, at, at last, I think they still do this. I was in Naples this summer. I don't remember actually seeing it this go round, but they would throw the, the, the shavings onto the fire to get it to flare up. It's not as good as having the perfectly hot oven, but it, it does give that the black bits on the top and makes it the way it should be. And it's, it's kind, of, kind of fun. I would say that the Neapolitans, I was shocked when I was there this summer, um, even at Damichele, the, the, the super classic place, the pizzas are now, are now bigger than they were. And uh, what is that? Eat, pray, love. She'd been there and it was a photo on the wall. I, I felt that they had sold out. I think you have to work harder, harder in Naples to find a funkier place now. And it's too bad. But anyway, there is still good pizza in Naples, but I was a little disappointed in some places. One thing that's always impressed me about your publication is it really does focus on taste and the details of how that comes to be. But I wonder at the same time, if in your travels there have been certain personalities that have really stood out for you or uh, been some way inspirational that you've met along the way. Yeah, well, there would be, and these are, the, the first two come to mind, you may have been thinking of food producers, but the first two, and I was, you know, Bruno Giacosa, somehow he keeps coming back to me, but I don't know what the heck he said, but he, well, I'll don't do the Bruno Giacosa because we're wine here. But, you know, I, I was there and, and, um, and his daughter, Bruna, introduced us. And she was going to sit in on the whole conversation because she, she thought her father, just his accent is, was so strong. I don't know, a little bit of dialect, whatever, that she thought I wouldn't understand him. But I did, totally. So she she bailed. And it was just a long, lovely conversation. I remember challenging him on, uh, you know, why he wasn't organic. And uh, he had some reason. It was very specific, to some specific insect or whatever, which I can't now trust my memory to to trot out. But I remember afterwards we were walking past the garden and his, the vegetable garden, he said, he said, that's, that's organic, <laughs> but the grapes weren't. But it, he, he was, he was very lovely and we tasted very good wines. And I've always had an incredibly warm spot toward him and the wines because of that. Anyway, to go back to people who influenced me more in terms of, of writing and an understanding of food, um, well, certainly all the little craftsmen do, but all the bakers and the cheesemakers and the farmers, whatever. But uh, 
especially in France, Richard Olney um, was was uh, what Julia Child was for some people. She was nothing for me. I mean, I I'm glad she did what she did, and 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 she probably made way for everybody who followed her. But Richard Olney, he was the man. I mean, I was a man. He was a man. You know, I guess there was some. You know, I could relate to him more. Uh, he he wrote in what now uh, he his writing is very stylish. I think you you could say, but it's almost a little arch or a little over the top, just almost. But he always said exactly what he meant. And and uh, when he died, now I can't even think how many years ago could must be ten more or more years ago. But there was a memorial service at his home in in Solies not far from Toulon in the south of France in Provence, uh, not too too far from Bondol and uh, Domaine Tompier, and Alice Waters was there. And, and I remember she said to me, now who is going to keep us pure now that Richard is dead? It's funny, I feel sad after all these years. But Richard really, he always said what he meant. He never compromised. And he, of course, he drank too much and could be outrageous and, you know, say words that at least we don't print in the New York Times and maybe would <laughs> say in the podcast because you don't know <laughs> if any children <laughs> you don't know if any children are, are listen, listening because it was pretty strong language but he he was and he was very entertaining and he would he would invite you know young chefs would write him and he would invite them to come and he would cook them a meal and he would open great great bottles from his cellar uh, you know, he opened a Domaine de Romane Conti, and and um, my then girlfriend said, mm, "This wine tastes like roses." And of course, that's like the key tasting note. And it was every, and, you know, it was it, it it was it was very special to go and see him, which I did. I think about three times, and and we exchanged in those days faxes. Richard was in love with the fax machine. He'd had one of the very earliest ones was when he did the Time Life series. I've forgotten what you call that. Tell, like I don't know. And, but 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 he he was in love with the fax machines, and there was a wonderful immediacy about the fax machine. Especially you know you got an actual physical s- signature, and you knew that that fax you know the guy if if you're standing by your fax machine and they're standing by theirs, you know that it's happening right in the moment. It's almost we think that email and texting and so on is very immediate, immediate, but it's almost more has it has almost more impact because you have a physical object in that in that piece of fax paper anyway that was richard's that was richard's main medium for communicating across the ocean and he did write a book about romani conti he did he did his best book is uh i think clearly uh, simple french food which i recommend to everybody there's very little about wine there um more wine in the French menu cookbook, which is also, I mean, everybody should own all these books probably. If you really love Romanet Conti, you should own the Romanet Conti book. But the books with the strongest form, uh, I think, are actually the food books, not the wine books, as much as, much as he cared about wine. And Ecam, the, the Ecam, and I hope I'm not forgetting, oh, well, the 10, 10 Vineyard Lunches, which was republished as, under another name, but that with everything with, with the wine, and those wines are some of them too old or they're unavailable, but every, you, you get, you, you understand so well. That's like a distillation of his, of his long cookbooks. But I, I think anybody who loves food has to own simple French food. So when did wine start to appear more in the art of eating? Do you know? I don't know. Um, maybe 15 years ago, maybe halfway, halfway through the time from when I started to now. And it, it was again. It was a self-education project. It's like I really wanted to know. Um, one of the pieces I did that was pretty in depth uh, and and needs to be redone now, but was uh, Beaujolais 
because uh, Idol was Richard Idol was written about Beaujolais. Uh, Kermit Lynch Adventures on the Wine Route was totally in, totally formative for me. That was that was the book that aha I begin to understand what this is about. I just wish I could afford to find I, I could find and afford to buy more of these wines more often. But that that was the book that painted the same kind of picture that Richard's uh, writing painted in, in terms of of food. Um, anyway, so I went to Beaujolais and and visited most of the best Beaujolais makers of the time. And, and I called it, the, the name of the piece was The Goal of a Gulpable Wine. And I think that came from uh, Kermit, I'm not sure. Uh, and I wanted to know what that meant, you know? And it's like, well, you don't really know if you don't go there and ask a bunch of questions and see how they're making stuff and, you know, have Marcel Lapierre start opening bottles and go see um, Jean Foyard, whom I really, who's stuff I really, really love, um, and just a whole bunch of other people. You know, there are people in other places. They're not necessarily all on the same bus with uh, Marcel Lapierre and, and and the gang of four or five or however many they are now. Uh, so, yeah, was that that was the, the self-education pro- project. Um, and, and I did the same with, with other wines and, and would like to do more. Were there times where you went looking for that self-education and looking for that something you'd heard about, but you weren't really able to find the real deal. Like ah. Castelmagno cheese comes to mind. Was that a frustration? <laughs> yeah. Well, in the end, I sort of did find it, but yes, because I I had I was really interested in Castelmagno, and I went and uh, spent the day with a a guy who was I don't know what exactly, but it's some combination of uh, I don't know economic development guy, not really a PR guy, but you know spent a lot of time with him up in the the up in that high valley where they produce the cheese above the the village of Castelmagno. And I don't think in that whole day, and I watched people make the cheese and everybody was very nice. And it wasn't, I mean, beautiful. I mean, it was just killer, you know, cows with bells up, you know, with the, the grass, eating the grasses growing in amongst the craggy rocks, really up at the top of the mountains. It was just great. And the cheese was a little um, unconvincing. And I, I'm, I am, for, and I also talked to Bepe Cola, but okay. So I, so I'm looking for Castelmagno, and and Bepe Cola basically tells me it doesn't exist. So, um, and and he's being very nice and very helpful, and and I had a very enjoyable time, and he invites me to big dinner with traditional foods, all these things, great. So I'm like, okay, but where? Somebody told me to go to the Stagionatura in Val Casotto, which is sort of more in the ski ski part of things. Um, way up in the hills, low mountains, uh, where there were still were some old people with just a few cows, very, very peasanty. And this was the uh, business later bought by Ocelli. Um, but uh, the guy who had always run it was, was, was there. I haven't reread my thoughts on this, so I'm forgetting his name, Andrea Borgna. And his mother was still there. And his his father had originally had this business, and in the old part, they would, you know, it just went deep, deep into the ground in the side in the side of the hill. But it went in cellars, 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 cellars. And he had unbelievable cheeses, just unbelievable. I hope it's still just the same. He would get, he got stuff out, and um, you know, it was the first time I ever felt you could eat the crust, the rind of a cheese that just was like brown and looked inedible, and and it was delicious. It was different from the inside, but it was delicious. And of course, back to poverty, you know, you don't waste anything. And I think one of the reasons that crust was delicious is that the poor were not going to make anything that they, they had to throw away. Uh, they, yes, they sold these cheeses into commerce, but they also ate them themselves. And, and in those days, of course, 
when you put a little cheese in a bowl of pasta, which was really just feast day food anyway. But when you put cheese into something, it needed to have an impact. It needed to have some real flavor. Uh, it needed to go a good distance. And so the, he had um, bra, he had um, rasquera, which he pronounced rasquera, uh, and he had castelmagno. And the castelmagno, the castelmagno, one of the distinguishing things about traditional castelmagno is that it's a blue cheese, which isn't necessarily blue, but it's always historically thought of as a blue cheese. It only goes blue where a crack occurs and the blue is allowed to air, air gets in and the blue molds the penicillium can grow. And he and and he had this ancient kind of wheel of Castelmagno, much funkier, darker perhaps a little bit in color, um, that had gone blue and very moist and tender. And it was just fabulous. So I brought a piece of that to Bebe Cola and he, I got a lot of respect. <laughs> so he, he he began to believe again. You know how, the, how skeptical the Italians can be. Everything's going to hell in a handbasket. Nobody makes that anymore, blah, blah, blah. But anyway, I got him, I got him some good uh, Castelmagno. You told me once that if you call enough people, eventually you're going to find the guy who knows, but it may be quite a few people. Yeah, yeah. And I've also said, I don't really necessarily know, but I know who knows. But yes, that's a little bit of maybe false bravado. But you do, if you keep making calls, you, you can come up with a lot of dead ends. But there's usually, it's like writing a book and researching it. You know, things come to a dead end. It is, well, basically it is exactly like writing a book because it's just a matter of, collecting those things and putting them in the book, which will happen for, for a number of those pieces. But um, yeah, there's somebody knows and you can, you can get to it. Every now and then something has gone extinct, but happily real Castelmagno had, had not. And, and the other stuff, not to give them a hard time, it's good. It just doesn't express the tradition. The, the tra- it doesn't express the qualities that, that gave it so much fame. So in your engagement with wine, what are some of the turning points that have occurred with bottles or regions? Oh boy, I, you know, I think the I think the thing that was more of a revelation than anything else was the Jura, and I can't remember where I first learned about yellow wine, and I never had it. I didn't have it till I went over there because I'm sure it was somewhere in some shop in New York or a few places in the U.S. Maybe, but it just wasn't out there, and so I traveled a couple of times. I can't remember whether I first did cheese, Comté, which is produced in the same region, or whether I did the wine first, but I just became fascinated. I loved, well, I loved the Vergeon, but I loved the Souvoir flavors in the lesser traditional wines. And then I discovered the red wines and I was like, holy gee, (laughs) you know, because I have, I have a taste for lighter wine and, you know, I might like to drink great Burgundy all the time, but actually the Pinot from the Jura is a lot more affordable and really, really delicious. Actually, I had uh, two bottles last night. (laughs) <laughs> One from Ganeva and uh, another, uh, which was, is it Juliana? Do you know the, the cuvee? Doesn't matter. And then a, oh, yeah. a wonderful blend. Julian. Cuvée is that what Julian. It? I think okay, it's Cuvée Julian. Oh, well, okay. There we go. Thank you. Uh, and this is why I can't be a full-time wine writer and wine critic. I get stuff wrong I, all the time. Because <laughs> I don't have that photograph. And an incredible bottle from Stéphane Tissot, which is barely here, which is the blend of uh, the three red, um, uh, Trousseau, Pulsard, and uh, Pinot Noir with a little Sauvignon. And that was really, really lovely. Oh, my goodness. So these wines, I, I had no idea. And then I went there, and I was just snowed, and I was visiting people and funky people. Was this guy named Lucien Vier or something, you know, people who would just maybe not be that good overall, but they would have like a great 
barrel and it was like, oh my God. Um, I think Louis Dressner was the one who sent me to that particular guy. He'd wanted to import him, but then he gave up. Um, but and then you go up to see Pierre Vernois and uh, um, uh, Emmanuel Ouillon. And, and I don't know, we're just going up and down they and, make bread. and finding, yes, <laughs> they make bread. And then, and you know, finding out all these details and, and having your all your suppositions upended about, you know, which, whether, do you really want to face north? Well, actually, you might for this particular reason and just all kinds of things. And then discovering that up there in Poupillon really um, is too cold for for vineyards and the vineyards are all a little further down. Just just painting a big picture of the whole area and finding uh, the trousseau of um, Jacques Pouffonnet and all this stuff and, you know, tasting with him and just like, oh my God. And I remember after that, I think I wrote about this, but I, I I think it must have been a bottle I got directly from him and brought home, and it was it was a white, and I, it was Sauvignon. I think it was Sauvignon. Maybe it was even Chardonnay. I'd have to reread what I what I wrote. I opened it on my kitchen counter, which is always where I think I taste the best. I'm just focused. I it's, I mean, walking around at a, or at a formal tasting, I just can't. That's not the same. So I made it at my kitchen counter. I opened this bottle of wine. I'm thinking. Oh my God, this is just totally undrinkable. It was just extremely reduced. It was just, I just thought, oh my God, this is completely hopeless. And I recorked it and sort of, and gave up on it and just left it on the counter. And I didn't do anything with it. And two weeks later, I opened it up and it was one of the most beautiful bottles of my life. It was just unbelievable. Anyway, all that was a revelation that there, there could exist a world like that. You started to invite other people to write about wine as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and how did that come about? You know, I don't even know. Somebody wanted, you know, it's like like the food pieces too. Somebody somebody really knew something. Somebody really knew a topic that I didn't know, and it's like okay. And you really care, like David Lilly on uh, Muscadet. It's like oh, he who could care more about Muscadet? He really cares, and he's he had been telling me about Muscadet for years and aged Muscadet, and I'm first hearing it, I'm thinking. Old Muscadet. There's my, my my thoughts. Like, who wants to drink old Muscadet? And again, you know, I even before he wrote that long, wonderful piece, I had all my thoughts about Muscadet overturned, and you know how acidic it should be, and and what it should what it should do, and what it should accomplish, and uh, you know even just to jump a little bit, but, you know, Muscadet and oysters, it's, it's a good combination. It's okay. But, you know, really what you want is, is premier cru, grand cru, Chablis. I just think that's the end of the story. I think you could probably also have a great, uh, quite grave, uh, Pesac Léonion, but, uh, I, all, all those things. To me, you know, the Sancerre, the, 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 the stereotype of, of, of the acidic Muscadet, you know, it's just like putting a lemon on your oyster. That's the logic of it. Well, I'm not sure I want lemon on my oyster. And I don't think that, that I think you want something a little more interesting than that, something to, to interact more. Anyway, I was, you know, Muscadet has a thousand uses. I love Muscadet. Maybe, maybe oysters are just, it's a fallback wine. And how big is the art of eating today in terms of pages? It, it was eight pages when I began and it grew erratically and went through a period Back, back in my user hostel days of not being bound. So if you dropped it, all the pages would fly out, you know. But it was very pure. <laughs> there was no ugly staple. Um, now it's perfect bound, meaning it's glued. And it's 48 pages plus cover. Yeah, and that, 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 that was challenging. You know, but I, I felt, 
you know, Cook's Illustrated, which is a very smart magazine in many ways, especially or not least from the point of view of publishing, and Chris Kimball is a very smart guy, it's 32 pages plus cover. And that was my model for a while. And then I realized that Cook's Illustrated logically has much shorter articles and you just couldn't dig in enough and have an, the kind of variety that a magazine needs to have in, in 32 pages. It needed to be 48 pages to have a mix of short and long and different things. So it, there's a certain, and of course, 48 pages is, it, you, you, you need two or three signatures, so three signatures um, to, to have it come out. So that's a perfect, perfect size, I think, for me, from, from my perspective as a publisher. Speaking about digging in, you've also penned some books along the way. Yes, yes. Um, yeah, I, The Artful Eater, which I had always wanted to call The Pursuit of Flavor. The Search for Flavor, I think, was actually my preferred title, but it got re- renamed before it went to press uh, in, oh gosh, I'm going to forget the year, but, you know, a long time ago now. The Artful Eater, which is still a valuable book and, and, and uh, didn't sell hugely, but um, got some recognition and some really good reviews. And, and, and there are people who still remember that happily uh, and, and point to it. And then it was, I, I made a slightly updated version of that uh, in 2004, uh, two years ago, I think, um, The Art of Eating Cookbook for the 25th anniversary of the magazine, which was partly stuff from the magazine, but it was deep. Everything was rethought, you know, oh, I, I thought it was going to be a open a word document, cut and paste. And it was just endless amounts of work. Things didn't form a whole, things were unbalanced. Some had huge head notes, some had none. Uh, yeah. The recipes that I had, I, and I added some recipes to make it more of a whole. And yes, the recipes that had been in the magazine pretty much had been cooked multiple times. I hate the word test, but for recipes, but had been cooked more multiple times. I mean, what, what test? It implies science. I mean, you know, test, I don't know. Um, and, and, that, and you can hand it to a recipe tester, and they're good recipe testers, but you hand it to a recipe tester, but you're not there. You know, you send it to a recipe tester in Brooklyn, whatever, somebody good. But you have to trust their palate. They don't know what you're looking for, so you've tested it. What I, and, and it's a whole, anyway, we were talking, now I've lost myself. We were talking about something completely different. <laughs> Just get me going, a, a small rant. Oh, oh, the cookbook. So the cookbook. So everything in the cookbook, because I'm the fanatical person I am, probably every word was revised 30 times. Some of it counting stuff that that maybe have been originally appeared in the magazine, but but once again, I just went over it countless, countless, countless times. So it's very refined. I think it's a book that probably didn't stand out as much in the public eye as it should have. I mean, it got some good reviews um, because it didn't go down a fresh path. My very first book, The Artful Eater, did. Um, you know, nobody had been writing, you know, th- so that was 18 chapters about ingredients. Nobody had really been doing that. So that caught some attention. The cookbook, I think, is uh, I hope it's an underground long-term seller because the recipes are so considered, they're so well presented. It's just that there there are things that perhaps you've encountered elsewhere, but I would like to think you've never met them in quite such perfected form as as they are in in that book, at least in the way they're presented. Um, but also the, the the care in the recipes. And now, do you want to hear about fifty foods? I do. <laughs> just launched. What is it? Last Thursday, whatever. Very recently, uh, fifty foods is boy. You know, 
It's a book of instant connoisseurship. I stumble over how to how to describe it, but it's not a cookbook. It's a book without recipes. It's a book for eaters. And as I have been telling just a few people, it occurred to me at some some time not very long ago that as far as I know, it is the first book just about how to appreciate food, just a broad-based book about how to appreciate food. The first book on that topic since... Um, Morton Shan's A Book of Food in 1927 and Edward and Lorna Bunyard's Epicure's Companion in 1937, both British books. Uh, at least one of them was published in the U.S. And they're, they're okay. My book is a lot more useful. It's certainly more up-to-date. <laughs> and it's, it's very much conceived as a whole, a balanced group of, of 50 foods. And I, <clears throat> Let me just go back. It's a book about eating. Every year... There are thousands of cookbooks, thousands of books about cooking. How come there's only been my book about eating since the 20s and 30s? And the answer is either that everybody else knew something that I didn't know, but I think it's actually, there's a huge, not not a niche, there's just a huge opening. I'm hoping this will be a really, really important book. So it's a how-to book for eaters. It, um, just like The Art of Eating, we really... It's all about getting to the essence of thing, the thing, the essence of, of, I don't know, starting with anchovies and ending with walnuts, but what makes it what it is, what the essential taste is. And it's not necessarily a single thing, just like the best, well, certainly in wine, the best is not just one thing. So it's all about uh, getting to the essence of it. And then there's like some practical, well, I hope the whole thing is practical how-to, but there's practical how-to, you know, if it's something not well-known, you know, how to, how to buy it, what, you know, what, what, do you, what do you look for in a pear, or what, you know, what, what determines ripeness, and then when you get it home, what do you do? Pears, almost all varieties, uh, are one of the few fruits that ripen off the tree rather than on. Like, if you leave it on the tree, it could just turn to mush. So, we talk about all those, I talk I talk about all those kinds of things, um, best varieties, um, how to store a cheese, even how to ripen, like back to the little goat's milk cheeses. You can, if you get one that's a little underripe, um, you can take that home and you can, you can ripen it. If you have a, a coolish spot, you just keep it moist, put it under a glass bell, an inverted bowl. Or hopefully you have, depending on where you live, might, you might have a, a cool corner of a room or a, or a, a cellar or some, some place to put it and lift it every day. Um, you can even ripen, um, Stinky cheeses, uh, washed rind cheeses, but you don't want to take them too, too far, but you can actually rub them just the way they always used to be rubbed with a wet hand. You don't, doesn't need additional brine by the time you get there, uh, by the time it gets to you, but, but you can, you can take those to an incredibly creamy, luscious state. So all these things are in the book and with every food that's all relevant, there are notes on wine and I'm not, not the season right now as we speak, but I, I'm particularly proud of the asparagus notes. Well, oyster notes, oyster wine notes too, as as we were talking about. Um, again, I I, I, get, I give a, a bit of a hard time to Sauvignon Blanc, which I think is just completely false. Now, let me say that I wrote all that stuff um, <clears throat> when I had uh, an asparagus bed that was probably fifty feet long and four feet wide, and every day we would go out with a huge colander and fill it to the point where we didn't need any more asparagus for that six to eight week season, and <clears throat> so we were testing testing. Oof testing. We were trying wines. We were trying different, all different kinds of wines. And when you have your own fresh asparagus, it's incredibly sweet. If you buy it in the supermarket, I always think it smells like human body odor, but that's another story, I suppose. We won't talk about it. It's distasteful. Um, 
you, it, it's like, well, why would, you know, and, they, and, and Sauvignon Blanc is herbal. You may have, you, you can come back at me if you disagree, but, but, you know, herbal. So it's green, so it goes with asparagus. Well, asparagus isn't particularly herbal. If, if as we all know, if the wine is more tart, is more acidic than the food, the food undercuts the wine. You don't want sweet asparagus with, with a really acidic wine. So, in fact, uh, there are all kinds of things that can work, depending upon the examples. Um, a nut's such a huge feltlina, but it's not so bad. Um, but but certain Rieslings, um, uh, they're, you know, crazy, crazy thing, even Vangeon, but that's, that, that's, another, that's the craziest example perhaps but but a sher- sherry there's some something inside out about how that works um also two more crazy examples would be um muscat and um in in their floral side because somehow they just make a jump it's not so much a dialogue but it's kind of equals asparagus and wine um but the thing that really is great is chondria really good chondria that's the place to go with a butter sauce the butter helps a lot so now that we have so many items on the market, whether it be wine, whether it be cheese, whether it be sea salt that we can choose from in a way that we didn't used to have a couple of decades ago. Is it really important to revisit this and as a sort of a user's guide to all of these ingredients that we could possibly put on our table? Yeah, I mean it's I'm not quite sure I follow you, but it's only fifty foods. But by extension, it's since it's a very balanced group, it's by extension sort of all foods, not perhaps quite there. No, the durian isn't really addressed. <laughs> but yeah, no, I think, you know, and I ask myself, you know, in 10 years, will we would, if I were to do the book again, would it be a different group of 50? But I think it wouldn't. I think it's really, it's anchored. I mean, it's, <clears throat> it's caviar and chocolate, but it's green beans, it's lettuce, it's pork, it's ham and bacon, it's beef and veal, it's, it's, um, you know, if anything, I wish I could have put more fruit in, but it's apples and pears and strawberries and figs. It's 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 anchors. It's a foundation. How long did it take you to write the book? I've been saying ten years, but really since it's really since day one. But about ten years ago, I had the idea, and then on and off, I just kept at it for ten years. It was a it it was a slog, and especially toward the end, I was just working like a maniac. My son was very very happy when every evening I wasn't grumpy at after dinner, sitting at the dinner table, re, you know, going over hard copy. <laughs> he got, I didn't know I was in a grumpy mood, but he told me when it was all over. Has it ever been frustrating to you to put in a lot of work and to receive respect and adulation, but not broader acclaim? Yeah, I mean, like selling a million books and making yeah. a lot of money. Um, yeah, a little bit. I, you know, I have only myself to blame if I write fifteen thousand words on unobtainable cheeses. But over time, I've really worked very consciously to be accessible. That the whole goal of Fifty Foods, in particular, was to be completely accessible and yet not compromise in the quality of the information at all, so that a chef, um, a sommelier, could pick up the book and actually l- learn things—not just one or two things, but but hopefully, I hope, I think, quite a few things. At the same time, somebody who really brought very little information to the subject at all would wouldn't find that I was making assumptions that he knew something, that that you could just pick it up and read and get it. So, and in The Art of Eating, we've, I've, I've had this in mind for years. You should be able, a writer, I or anybody writing for us, should be able to speak to two audiences at once, um, 
and and the one I always thought of was Victor Hazan, who wrote the Italian, you know, the wonderful book about Italian wine. But you have to be able, if you're going to write about Italian wine, you have to speak to Victor Hazan, but you have to speak to somebody who just wants, you know, really doesn't know much more than a cheap bottle of Chianti and just kind of wants, you know, is interested, brings interest, but no knowledge. And so the spanning that huge gap can be done. It's just part of, you, you, you just, you just a few words, you know, that just give a nod to, to, to either the extremely informed or the very little informed uh, reader, but it, it can be done. Anyway, I, I worked really, really hard in, in 50 Foods to, to accomplish that, and, and I hope I have. One thing I've noticed about you is that it's not just that you do the research and spend the time and do the, the extra interview and go to the place. You also have a precision in the way that you write, or the way that you edit, because I've been edited by you. No, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, I know, I do it. You, I do you have a, a way of being uh, quite clear with the less is more words philosophy. How did that come about? What was what was it a size constraint of the magazine? Was there an influence of another writer? Why the emphasis on? What I would call less is more. Yeah, right? it, it's sim- simplicity is is another way of, of putting it. But definitely, I, I use the phrase less is more when when I think think about it. Honestly, it's a kind of funny thing, but I guess many people have have, have, have curious reasons. But but it, it, I was I always wanted readers, despite what I've been talking about. I wanted to be read. I wanted to be paid, and I wanted to have an audience. And I was afraid that if I wasn't clear and concise, I wouldn't have as many readers. So I, I, I would say I was driven by economics. I was driven by the desire for an, for an audience and and uh, and paying subscribers. And I kept thinking, you know, if 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 these first six opening sentences are deadly, people are going to turn the page, you know. And and writers don't always think think in those terms either. Every piece, in a way, is a competition. It is, is entering itself in a competition for the reader's time. Reader could do anything. Reader could go on his phone. Reader could could go into the kitchen and cook something. Reader could turn the page and read somebody else's article. Reader could throw down the art of eating and pick up uh, whatever, uh, a book. Um, so I think it was that fear of imposing on the reader's time that really did it. But I also, uh, my visual taste is is for simplicity, is getting the most accomplishing the most with the least means. And I, I am aware that there are other styles of writing. And I probably sometimes have forced a writer too much down that path. So I try to be very conscious that I'm not just cutting out a word because it's not my taste. Um, and I, I probably lately have leaned a little bit backwards the other way. And I'm leaving words in that I, I question because I think... And this leads to the larger question of how people are writing now compared to the way they were before we were so digital. People are, in publishing, everybody writes really good emails. There are sentences that people even begin dear, um, which I like. <laughs> I don't do it mostly, but but we do some, and especially our first email uh, to somebody. Uh, but in the big world, I know and I get them. Emails are really sloppy. There's a style of writing um, that I don't, I'm not convinced of, but everything is in, everything is in present tense. Uh, it's very casual, but it's also sloppy. So the idea I have is that we need to, in the writing, the art of eating, and in my writing, to some extent, express some of that casualness, that um, 
it's the form of sloppiness without the, the content of sloppiness, if you will. It's the casualness, the easiness, and yet all the facts are there. You've really said what you mean. And that's, that, that's, I think that's hard to do. And there are not many, there are not many writers out there doing it. They tend to, to, if, if they, if they achieve that kudos to them, but it's, it's the way writing will go. And I think we've been through a period in, in publishing of, on all, all sorts of topics, but food and wine, not least, where quality was not valued, quality of information was not valued. And nobody wanted to pay for quality. And I think, again, the pendulum is swinging. I think people know that you don't get something for nothing. There's been a lot of talk about curated information, which I maybe that word has been overused, but I think it really expresses what there is a need for. Nobody wants to bounce all over the internet looking for something. You want a, you want a voice you trust. And I also think you want a voice. I think, I think it's very helpful a lot of times to, to, to know who is speaking Partly just because we respond more to an individual, we, but also because you know the prejudices and what they're bringing to the table on a particular topic. I mean, I always loved the early Encyclopedia Britannica's where the uh, the articles were signed and they actually would have some personal, every now and then something would slip in that was just a highly personal bit of opinion. Uh, I think, you know, I think we'll, we'll have more of that and the economics will be worked out. But meanwhile, of course, nobody's being, not that many people are being well paid for being smart. It does seem quite often when I read The Art of Eating that Although there are multiple authors now, it, it seems more like a choir where there's a harmony of voice. I hope so. I, I did get an email the other day from somebody who who missed my very long articles that um, it would be more than half an issue, and and maybe maybe we'll have those again before too long. But uh, yes, I hope so. I hope so. I mean, it. I work over every word. I mean, we have other copy editors. Every piece is read by several people who aren't copy editors, pretty much as a rule, and then passes through the hands of two, three, or four copy editors. Um, maybe the last is just a proofreader, but it's really looked at. But still, it, 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 it's my sense of interest, um, my sense of what's interesting and, and, and how things should be gone about, what kinds of questions should be answered. Everything has got to be anchored in taste. We probably, most of you, maybe they don't know, but we don't do health. We don't do nutrition. Um, somebody wanted to categorize my book for sales purposes as health and nutrition. <laughs> and I'm like, I was like, can you put it under debauched, please? <laughs> you know, I just, it would be so much better. Uh, so anyway, we're about taste. We're not about food history. We're not about social history. We're not about entertaining anecdotes. We really want to be useful and, and entertaining at the same time. So there's a lot of, um, you know, I, I want to know when I'm at a piece what the reader's going to take away from it that, that you can actually use. You know, okay, it's, it's something about a, re it's a restaurant review of a restaurant in the countryside in China near Burma, which we did not too long ago this year. Uh, well, why would I want to read about that? So it has to describe that cuisine and, and the materials and the place so that you, you might gain something very tangible, like some information about a particular ingredient. But you, you understand there's another way of looking at food that forms a whole in this particular place, a little bit of insight in how a cuisine comes together because there's background. Uh, there might be something about, you know, this is really delicious food and, and there's an accompanying photograph of the kitchen and you realize just how rudimentary this is. And perhaps that's a good thing because the food is really clean and pure. There was nothing to get in the way, nothing intervening. Have you gone to regions on behalf of the art of eating where you've thought, boy, the wrong side is winning here? <laughs> you mean 
like a wine region. <laughs> yeah, or cheese or bread. Or- yeah, I mean, it can be very frustrating. You can, in not so much in Italy. I mean, France and Italy are the places I've visited most, a little bit Spain, a little bit elsewhere. Um, I've been spent some time in Greece, but never really written about it. You can be very frustrated in France looking for regional food in certain regions that you want to taste, not necessarily the raw material, but if you want to go and eat a dish in a restaurant, good luck. If you really want to taste that dish in, in, a, in a great version, if you don't know somebody there to cook it for you, the best thing you can do is buy a bunch of cookbooks, figure out what the real thing is, try to get at the essence of it and cook it yourself. That's very frustrating. I'm trying to think. I mean, you know, one time I... I drove up this valley in the Rhone Alps region, I guess it was, but it's over toward Italy up the, it's the Valley of the Tine river. And there was supposed to be a farmer's market there and cheeses there. And, and it was getting late in the day. And I drove a million miles an hour up this windy road that kind of made you nauseous. To, and it got to there and got to the farmer's market. And it was somebody's wishful thinking, bad information. There were no, you know, this was an area where there'd been sheep's milk and sheep's milk cheeses. There were no sheep's milk cheeses there. There was nothing, you know, there was nothing. It was a relatively depopulated area that had like three uninteresting ambulance sellers of something in this so-called market. And there was nothing. So that, that can happen. And then we spent the night in a hotel and had a really, really bad meal. <laughs> I mean, how many bad meals does it take to find that great meal that you want to write about? Oh, boy. I mean, it's really almost all the time about having really good advice, especially in France, but, but also in Italy. And the trouble is you don't always know whether the person who's giving you the advice has good advice or not. I mean... In France in particular, the winemakers tend to know where the good restaurants are in, in the area and in, and in Italy. Um, we were in Calabria this summer, and, and that, that's a whole other, that's another world and another topic. And it, it's not, it's the place that everybody's, everybody in food and wine is always about to visit, and hardly anybody does. And it's not the easiest place to visit. And it was always very poor, which is a huge part of it. We found, I went with my family partly on a vacation. And we were not there that long, but the amount of roadside litter was very dispiriting. In places, the amount of cheap resort development in, in places that had been very beautiful was dispiriting. The people were very nice, partly because they'd been poor, they were very relaxed, very open, uh, very friendly. That People were wonderful. There was good food, but boy, you had to know where to look for it because it was all this resort food with very few places that weren't like that. Uh, look in the, you look in the Slow Food Osteria Guide, which is always a, a resource in situations like that. The places were few and far between. We were directed, though, we stayed at a very kind of funky bed and breakfast, and we were directed to a restaurant down the hill. And it was just, it was, I thought it was great. I mean, it wasn't world-class great. It was totally local. I mean, the, 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 tomato sauce for the pasta, which was homemade. The tomato sauce was based on goat. And, and we were warned. It was, some, it was about as goaty as anything I've ever eaten. So you may take that as a plus or not a plus, but everything was homemade. Everything, you know, the, the bottle of wine, everything, you know, you go in, there's no menu. And yet it's, it's a modern place. It's a new place. We arrived at 9.15, I think, in the evening. It was getting late. We were worried. Oh, it was a Saturday night, I think. But 
We were very worried. We'd just arrived. We hadn't been organized. It was getting late. We thought, we're lost in the country, 9.15, the place will be empty. We arrive, it's empty. And we're thinking, okay, are we still going to be able to eat? Is the kitchen closed? Turns out, of course, we are the first ones. And and we're looking out. Of, and this was very. This was a very beautiful spot. So Calabria is such a mixed quantity. There's a little island out there marking the coast. It's uninhabited. You know, the sun goes down, it quickly gets dark, and everything's just darkness. But it was just beautiful from this, this, this hillside. And the place gradually filled up. And there were some families, not just ours. And you, you, you go and and there's no written menu. It's one of it's the classic Italian thing. So you're kind of feeling your way between what they're suggesting and what you want and whether and they're trying to help you, but you know, you're 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 deciding. So often if they if they really specialize in antipasti, that's it it's a, a good way to go to get a big selection because then you tend tend to have local stuff and then you may not want anything more. And then you come and you negotiate the next course, the pasta course if you want it, or the meat course if you want it. And uh the wine is is you know, loose in a, what do we got? Just a bulk in a bottle, so to speak. Um, you know, we broke accidentally. I think I knocked a bottle onto the floor and they quickly apologized and cleaned it up. And, and you know, the people next door, everybody was so nice. And then, and you've never, don't have any idea what this is going to cost, of course, in, in these situations. And I've never had a problem, but certainly there are plenty of, of foreigners visiting who would be very ill at ease in that situation. In fact, we went on online to read reviews of this place all in Italian. And there were people, probably impecunious resort vacationers who had been offended by this place and thought it was really expensive, but it was a vast quantity of food. And the bill came and it was 20 euros a piece, you know, for a couple of bottles of wine and all this food. And you just thought, oh my Lord, you know, and everything was real. It was all real. This was really the food of that hillside. Have we gone through a period of time where what is good was defined by a certain aesthetic lens of a kind of perfection, of a kind of goal, of a, of a certain kind of fine dining. And now what we're seeing is that it, what really depends is how you look at it aesthetically to find whether it's enjoyable or good. Like, did it does it turn out that there's not just one good dinner experience, but that, that it's a weave? I'm not sure I completely follow you, of course, you can say that there were always really varied experiences, even in even in pre-modern days. You know, you could eat humble food, you could eat very very varied kinds of very high-end food. Um, there's been a revolution in restaurants. You can say, of course, revolution is a word that gets thrown around a lot for all kinds of metaphorical uses. But I'm very aware that there's a modern kind of aesthetic that is partly a response to economics, uh, where we have no more tablecloths on the tables, where um, bread is sometimes optional, which is, that's pretty revolutionary. And if we're talking about Western food and, and, and not so much in the United States, but, but bread was the foundation of, of the Western diet. Wheat bread was the foundation of the Western diet. Obviously, there was rye in places, there was buckwheat in places, there were other grains sometimes, and even chestnut and so on flour used to make bread. But wheat bread was really the basis of the Western diet. And somebody's going to say, oh, pasta, pasta, ah, pasta. Well, one thing about pasta is if you need to walk out in the fields the next morning and have your lunch, if you put leftover wet pasta in your pocket, it's not going to be a very successful lunch. Uh, bread, I think one of, the, one of the many reasons that bread was so important was that it was easily portable. Uh, Pasta was food in Italy for feast days. There were 
a little bit more in the north. Perhaps it was less unusual, but there were places where people ate it once a year. So pasta is not important. Uh, it, it becomes important. I should hedge. I should say yes. It becomes important. There, there begins to be manufacture of pasta, I think, as early as the 1600s in certain areas of Campania near Naples, and Naples was the market. They, but that was the exception. Uh, pasta was, was, was not everyday food. Bread, even in Italy and everywhere, bread was the foundation. So we get rid of, we shove bread off the table, off the table without the tablecloth, um, it, that's a revolution. That's saying there is no more Western food to me. And that could be inevitable. And why, you know, and why should there be bread on the table? I mean, we're maybe mostly Westerners in our immigrant origins in this country, but um, why not rice? You know, why not millet? Why not corn, porridge? Why not, you know, all kinds of things? Why not tortillas? Uh, well, maybe that's a form. Some of these things are arguably a form of bread, but starch can can come to the table in different ways, and potatoes, whatever. Uh, and then we're getting, you know, I've just been writing about this. I almost don't want to spill the beans, but I think that, you know, I think that traditional food will be with us for a very, very long time, and it ins inspires great chefs, you know, Ferran Adria, uh, René Redzepi, whoever, people, there's nobody that I'm aware of, there's no great chef cooking in the most extreme modern style who doesn't feel that everything depends on traditional food. And I think that will continue, but at some point we're gonna lose the traditional food and we're just going to have modern food. It's maybe far still in the future, but the losses of tradi traditional food are, are steady. I mean, how, who's cooking at home now anyway in this country? I mean, you know, they talk about, uh, chefs talk about kind of reinventing a local cuisine based on climate and soil and local resources and all that. This is a restaurant cuisine. This is not, you know, a lo local cuisine was based on, on women cooking at home with some overlay of professional male chefs. That's not happening again. Um, so it's, very, it's a very interesting question about, about where we go from here. And I've often, often asked, you have these um, traditional combinations of food, these complements. Uh, we're familiar with them all. And I suppose somebody would throw in peanut butter and jelly. <laughs> but, you, you know, the, 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 the materials of a grand aioli in Provence, say, or I don't know, you know, the... The raw oyster uh, from the Gironde estuary with um, the local hot with black pepper sausage, um, the raw oyster with the hot sausage, with the bread, with the grave. And what, where, where are the new combinations that the chefs are inventing that people are celebrating and talking about and reproducing over and over and over? I don't say that there aren't any, but, but it's hard to point to ones that are as compelling as the ones that fill the old cookbooks. Is authenticity defined at different times in different ways? And what for you does it really mean? Yeah, it's a it's a fraught word, unfortunately. There are a lot, you know, a lot of them like artisanal <laughs> or uh, I don't know, natural wine. Um, yeah. Well, as I think I've said, it's it's the underlying thing. It's my it's my whole interest in food, um, but it's also it's it can be a moving <clears throat> target. I mean, yes, maybe you can figure out, maybe you can figure out what great black pepper is 
is. You know, maybe it's some organic telecherry pepper because maybe that's, I think, if I remember correctly, you know, near the center of genetic origin in those mountains. Um, maybe there's something that the black pepper from that area is the most black peppery. So maybe you can talk about the most authentic, authentic flavor of black pepper. Um, maybe to use a 50 foods example, um, talking about Gruyere or talking about Comté, which is Gruyere de Comté properly in the Jura mountains on the French side. Um, but in Switzerland too, everywhere, Big mountain cheeses. Why were they made big? They were made big because, well, first of all, it depends on cows. Then it, the size is, is, is because you have a lot of milk. So efficiently, you're not going to make a ton of little cheeses the way you would with goat's milk. Um, you're going to make a big cheese. And you're in the mountains, so you're not close to the market. So it's also big because it has to keep so you can get it to the market. If you had a bunch of little cheeses, they would dry out and become like the little goat's milk orangey hockey pucks that you see in the south of France. Um, so you need a great big cheese that's suited to aging that that you can take it to market and you and you've got cows because they thrive in that with the the rainfall and the pasture and 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 the winter hay in that area. So maybe authentically what a cheese like you know that that is an an expression of authenticity not to get into fine points and there are obviously multiple kinds of mountain cheeses and and some of them big and slightly different shapes but there's that's a certain kind of authenticity. But then if you if you talk about the authenticity of dishes, you know, what is a ragu bolognese? I mean, God only knows. Um, I think I would say that it's, it's very long cooked. <laughs> it's got some tomato in there, but maybe not a whole lot. Uh, it, it contains multiple meats. Pork must be among them. I, you know, I haven't, I've, I've never, I'm really speaking off the top of my head. I, I've, I've written down the recipe, but I've published a recipe for it, but I never tried to absolutely def define it in, in, in what, what, what are its limits. But it, it's changing. It, it, was, it was different from one house to another, uh, different probably in different neighborhoods of Bologna and towns outlying. And, you know, what exactly does ragu mean? And, and, um, and the same goes for almost everything. I mean, there, there, there was never a single recipe. So when you talk about authentic, you could spend quite a lot of time with each dish, trying to figure out what the limits of it would be. You can also talk about what the essence of, of a dish could be. And maybe that would be a little easier because you could play the minimalist game. You know, is this add, does this add to the dish or does this take away from the dish? You know, do we, do we need this chopped garlic in here? Is that pumping it up or is that actually distracting from the main ingredient? Do we need, uh, in this vegetable soup, which is served with uh, raw walnut oil on top. That's the garnish um, in my Art of Eating cookbook. Do we need herbs in there? Or is that just completely over the top? You know, I mean, you, you, can, you can figure some things out. So I guess I would just say it's a really, really important concept, authenticity, and don't really try and define it unless you've got a really a lot of time. <laughs> Ed Bear, he's on a search for taste. It's a thoughtful pursuit that's well-researched, and you can find it in The Art of Eating, which he publishes, or in the recently released 50 Foods. Thank you very much for being here today. Oh, it was a huge pleasure, Levy. Thank you. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Skella has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose, 
and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tanoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.